the goodness of God. But we have the promises of God that show us that even in the midst of a storm, even in the midst of darkest seasons of our life, that even in the midst of the greatest hardships, um, that the Lord is good. And we have this challenge for us, those of us who gather in spaces like this, with people that believe that our Savior rose from the dead, we have this challenge to us, and that is to believe in spite of, right? In spite of what it looks like, in spite of the storm that descends, in spite of the disease um, that is present, despite of death that has taken, the gospel is that death appeared to have won, but that God robbed the grave and proved that in spite of the dark clouds, in spite of the dark night, in spite of the deadly disease, God still reigns and he's good. And in the end, we will be able to tell the story and we'll say, I knew it was true, not because of the way my situation or my circumstance looked, but I knew it was true because my faith and belief in the God who conquered death and rose from the dead. And I read the story and I believed it with all my might. And there's coming a day where we'll be able to stand and say, I believed and now I see with my own eyes that the Lord is good for all eternity. Oh, how we look forward to that day. The church perseveres now on way to that day that we get to see the goodness of God for eternity when all things are healed, all things are made right, all dark clouds are lifted, and the sun will shine forevermore. That's a good thing. Amen. Well, good morning, Tri-Cities Church. I, I have the joy of uh, sharing with you the total from our Big Give offering. You know, last week we took up our Big Give offering, and our goal was $20,000. And I have the joy of announcing to you that we took up $22,800. $22,800. Yeah, that is, that is your generosity, Tri-Cities Church. You have given, you have believed in the work of God in this world. And that's not just a sign of something that we've done that we can pat ourselves on the back about, but it's something that we say that God is raising up faith within us that stretches us to do things that sometimes seem beyond our ability to do. When we stretch a response to uh, God's word and God's challenge in our lives, God proves over and over again, as he's done throughout history, that he's faithful, that he provides, that he is good enough, that he is sufficient. In fact, our gener generosity is just a declaration um, in our belief that God is sufficient, that he is enough, and that we can give out and he will refill. And so I thank you, Tri-Cities Church, for listening uh, to God and being challenged by him and being willing uh, to give in response to the promptings of the Lord in your life. This morning, we're uh, not quite wrapping up our God is Good series. We're in Psalm chapter 23, verse uh, 5, as we've been journeying through the book of 
Psalms. I want to read this scripture, and I'm not sure. I'm going to read Psalm 23. I'm not sure it's on the slides, but I'm just going to read it. If it's not on the slides, you can just listen. If you have it in your Bible, you can turn to it. If not, you can just listen. There's something special about uh, just simply listening to the word of the Lord read. So let's listen to the word of the Lord. It says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray and then get into our word for this morning. God, we do give you thanks that this morning we get to open this scripture, one of the most popular verses in all of the Bible, and we get to read it as generation upon generation has read it. For more than a thousand years, your people have stood on this scripture as true for their lives, as tested and trustworthy. And so God, we, your people, turn to it this morning, believing that it has been tested and that it is trustworthy. Therefore, we're trusting it. And as we search this passage and other scriptures in your word, God, I pray that you will strengthen our faith, that you will help us to see your goodness and how it operates in this world, and that you will help us to experience and live into your goodness, that we can declare with even more passion and even more conviction and faith that God is good, and that the world will come to know through our lives and our actions, not just that we believe, but that you really are good. It's in your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. So in 23rd Psalm, we've seen as it begins, the Lord is my shepherd. In verse 5, David actually drops this shepherd metaphor. He's been working with this shepherd metaphor throughout this whole passage of Scripture. But in verse 5, he drops the shepherd metaphor and switches to a metaphor where he imagines God as a host, right? He imagines God as the one who welcomes us into his home. Now, hospitality in the biblical world was a huge thing, and sometimes I think it's easy for us to miss out on the biblical teachings of hospitality because our context is so far removed from the biblical context. Now, in the biblical world, it was based, um, it, it was based much more around community than our world is today. I mean, you just think about your own street that you lived on. Maybe you've lived there five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, you probably don't know all the people that live on your street. You probably couldn't call out your neighbors by name. But in the biblical world, you would have known your neighbors. You would have known them by name because you depended and trusted on them. Community wasn't just a, uh, um, it, it wasn't just an addition or a luxury to their lives. It was actually a survival strategy, right? You needed your neighbors to survive. You needed the people who lived around you in order to survive. You depended upon them. They depended upon you. And so they lived in a much deeper level of community in the biblical world because things were simpler 
and there was like, you know, I mean, you can just kind of imagine a simpler time when there's a few blacksmiths in a town that you might need. Or, or you think about like today, there's only a few, if there were only a few mechanics, everybody would know the mechanic. If there were only a few people that could do plumbing in all of East Point, everybody would know the plumber. If there were a few, you know, just think about how that world would have looked like and how they would have lived and depended. If there was one baker and you needed bread, right? Although in biblical time, I think everybody was kind of a baker, but you get the point, right? That, that if, if the people knew each other, they depended upon each other, and they got services from one another. And so the community was much more closely knit. In fact, now it was so closely knit that if an outsider came in, the intuition of the people was not to trust an outsider because they represented a threat. So if I know you, you know me. I know I can trust you. You know you can trust me. When a foreigner or an outsider comes into town, everybody puts their guard up. No one wants to welcome them into their home. Nobody wants to provide them respite. Now, in a world where there were a few hotels, motels and places that you could stop if there were any, right? There weren't hotel chains like there are today. In a world where there were few hotels, it depended upon people that were willing to welcome others into their homes and provide them a place of comfort. Now, all week I've been thinking about um, some of our hotel experiences with my wife and I as we've traveled. And I remember our first year of marriage, we, we made a trip to Miami. And we, we drove down. Uh, and we drove down. We stayed, uh, I, don't, I don't even remember, four or five days down in Miami. It was our one-year anniversary. My wife is from the Caribbean islands, so she loves the beach. When it came time for us to leave, she was like, I don't want to go. And I was just like, if I have to pack you up and put you in this car, like we're, we're, we're leaving Miami. We're headed back to Atlanta. We stayed as long as we possibly could and decided that on our way back we'd make it a two-day trip because we ended up leaving the beach so late and we decided we'd stop in Gainesville. Gainesville is a decent-sized city and so we figured we'd just pull over. This was before like Yelp and smartphones and all this kind of stuff and so we decided we'd just pull over and we'd stop at a hotel and so we pull over it we get off this exit and there's a hotel right there at the exit. It's a day's in and it is as sketchy as you could imagine. <laughs> Um, and we look at it, and we're like, surely it can't be as bad as it looks on the outside. And so we, we roll up to this hotel. We go in, and it's one of these, this is old. You know when you go in those old buildings, and the lights are just kind of dim because of these old electrical systems, and just things just feel kind of, ugh, you know. And so we go in, and, and we, we, we ask for a hotel room just for the night because we were just going to sleep there, get up first thing in the morning, and, and head out. And so we, um, we, we, we get a hotel room, and it, and it was very affordable. Uh, and, and we get to the room. We walk in the room. You sh we shut the door. First thing we noticed was that there was a gap under the door, and you could just see sunlight. And I was just imagining critters and all kinds of stuff coming in there, crawling on me while I was sleeping. And we go to the bathroom, and there's mold all over the place. The bed didn't look like it had been made, and the sheets weren't clean. And we are just, my wife goes, I was like, it, it's just a night. Like, and she's like, nah, it's not even going to be a night. We're going to sleep in the car if we have to. And so we go back up to the front desk, and we tell a lady, we, we just can't stay here. We get our money back. And she ends up refunding our money, and she goes, I don't blame you. I wouldn't stay here either. <laughs> at, at, at that moment, we knew he had made the right decision, right? Now, now, in the biblical world, 
right? Just like us traveling and needed a place of rest and respite and recovery for, because we were on the road and we were tired, we needed a place to stay. In the biblical world, at least to Israel, God writes all the time in the Old Testament or speaks through his people all the time in the Old Testament about the value of hospitality, right? About the value of opening your home and providing a place of rest and recovery for the weary traveler. Because anybody that's traveled and needed a place to stay knows the value of a comfortable bed, a good meal, a place that you feel safe and secure, and that you can close your eyes and sleep throughout the night. In the biblical world, hospitality was a big deal. This welcoming someone into your house was necessary. And in um, Psalm 23, verse 5, this is what we see God doing. God, David imagines, David is the writer of this Psalms, Psalm, he um, is a shepherd in the Old Testament who eventually uh, God anoints and he becomes king over all of Israel. But he wrote Psalm 23, and David imagines God as this host that welcomes us into his house and spites our enemies because he's welcoming us before all of our enemies. If you look back at Psalm chapter 23, verse 5, look at what it says. It says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So God is rolling out the red carpet for you in the presence of your enemies. You anoint my head with oil my cup overflows surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever we're going to get there next week because that's good news Um, but he says you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies now all over the Psalms and in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament scriptures we see this concept being developed of enemies Now, Israel had enemies, right? And and it's hard for us to understand and apply these passages because because we don't we don't quite have enemies in the same way. But when we're reading passages like this, we see that Israel had these national enemies, right? These, these like the Philistines. Every time you're reading in the Old Testament, the Philistines are popping up as the enemies of Israel. They're always at war with the Philistines. I can't figure out why in the world they're constantly having to fight the Philistines. It's like, just deal with them and go. But it just seems like, it's like they fight a battle. They might win it or might not. But if they win it, in, in, like the David and Goliath battle, you would think that would be the end of the Philistines. They just keep popping up over and over again. Those, those were, they were one of Israel's enemies. But then also in, in the Old Testament, you see that David had uh, uh, enemies as, as an individual, kind of individual enemies uh, like Saul in, the, in um, 1 Samuel. Uh, if you pick up in verse uh, chapter 16, you see that David is anointed by God. Uh, and then in, in chapter 17, uh, David fights Goliath and, and defeats Goliath. Uh, chapter 18, uh, people are starting to rally around David after he defeated the giant Goliath, uh, the warrior of the, of the Philistines. Uh, and, and then at that point, you see Saul getting jealous of David and seeking to kill David, kill David take his life. And, and that became one of his enemies that he writes about when he talks about God, deliver me from my enemies. And so over and over again in the Old Testament, and particularly in the Psalms, we see the psalmist writing, God, please deliver me or deliver us from our enemies, whether that's a national enemy like the Philistines or whether it's a personal individual enemy like uh, Saul was for, for David. They're saying, deliver me from my enemies. And I think the big deal here in, in all the Psalms is that God is greater than our enemies. That's what the psalmist is declaring. Declaring that God is greater than any enemy that you might have. 
Now, the tendency, though, for us is to take this, all these passages about enemies and begin making or at least looking for enemies in our own life. And we wrestle with who do we apply that label to? So who's an enemy in my life? Who are, who are my enemies? And I've seen this applied all different kinds of ways. In fact, I've applied it all different kinds of way, ways. Um, so we may, we may look, um, the, this person that maybe cuts us off in traffic, right? And that person ticks us off. That's my enemy. And you remind yourself, like God says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So I'm going to pray for them instead of do something else to them. Um, and, 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 uh, and, and so you're committed to praying for your enemies. Or maybe it's this manager, somebody at your job that you just, you just despise, or a co-worker um, that just drives you nuts, right? And, and, and you've labeled that person as an enemy or a neighbor, or, or maybe the enemy, at least sometimes it feels like maybe living in your own house. I, I've never felt that way, but I'm, I'm sure I've heard some people feel like that. Um, so maybe your enemy, maybe it feels like it's your spouse, right? And, and that seems to be your enemy, and you're reminding yourself constantly to love your enemies. And, and I think we got to be careful whenever we read passages in Psalms about our enemies, God preparing a table uh, in the presence of our enemies, or God deliver me from my enemies. we got to be careful because in, in the Psalms at least, and, and it really in the Bible, the enemy is something much more than this person that gets on our nerves, right? It's much more than this person that we just don't like or just can't stand. That we just call that what it is. That's just a person I, don't, I just don't like or the person is just driving me nuts. But in, in the Psalms, what we see is that an enemy is a person with open hostility and this determination to harm the other. So somebody who's openly hostile towards you and determined to harm you. And, and, and God is greater than that enemy, right? That person that's out to get you, that person that wants to pursue you, if you have that person in your life. We don't always have clear human <laughs> enemies in our lives. You know, our tendency is to search for one and to label people that way. But it's okay not to have clear human enemies. And this scripture still applies because what we see when we read in the Bible is that there are at least three enemies that every human has and that this scripture applies to. There are at least three enemies that every human has. And I want you to see what these are. The first one is the world around us, right? The world around us is our enemy. Now, the Bible uses this word world to refer to this humanistic, this, um, this system of logic that's based on human reasoning, uh, this... this um, kind of the, oh man, the Bible talks about the ways of the world, kind of uh, the flow of our culture apart from God, right? If, if God didn't intervene and if people didn't know and reach out for God and culture was allowed to, our society and culture was just able to flow in its own direction, make its own decisions, uh, it would flow in a way that was in opposition to God. And so the Bible calls that the world. The world is this humanistic system that is in opposition to God. And Jesus teaches in John, we saw this last year as we journeyed through the gospel of John. Boy, I can't believe we're at the end of another year. Um, but last year as we journeyed through the gospel of John, uh, we, we saw that Jesus refers to the world often, and he teaches his disciples. This is right before he's going to the cross, and he sits down and has this conversation with his disciples. He teaches them that the world is going to hate them. If you look in John chapter 5, and look at what it, what it says, uh, says there in John chapter 5. I'm, I'm going to pick up in verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it will love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world 
hates you. Now, um, Jesus lived in a society that was much less civil than ours. <laughs> and so you really felt the hate, right? Um, the, pe- believers' lives were being taken uh, for their belief. Like people that believed in Jesus Christ, they were losing their life. They were losing their business. They were losing their livelihood. They were losing their homes. They were being arrested. They were being persecuted uh, in the first century. And so, um, so the, they really felt the hate. Now, to some degree, we should still feel this disconnect from the world, this uh, place of, uh, or this feeling of not belonging within the world. And Jesus says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me. He's talking about this, the world being this uh, system, humanistic system, uh, this hum- a system based on human logic that ultimately flows in opposition to God. And he says, it's going to feel like you're going in opposition to the world because you're following God and the world system is going in opposition to God. And so as you do that, you're going to feel like you don't belong. Um, and, and you're going to know that I have, Jesus saying this, I have chosen you out of the world and this is why the world hates you. So when you feel as though you're in tension with the way of the world, whether that's just your morals, your values, your ethics, um, your beliefs, your patterns of life, right? While everybody else is sleeping in on Sunday morning, you're like, I, I'm gathering with the church, right? Maybe it's even something as simple as that. And, and you're going, this feels like it's going against the pattern of this world. And that's because it is. Jesus says, I've chosen you out of the world. The world around us becomes our enemy because it's flowing in a way that is in opposition to God. But that doesn't mean so you flip over just a couple of chapters in, in John chapter 17. That doesn't mean that, um, that we're to disconnect from the world and live in some kind of Christian bubble. In fact, Jesus teaches a couple of verses over. This is the same conversation that he's having with the disciples that's in uh, chapter 15, 16. And then it picks up again in, in, verse, in chapter 17 where Jesus tells us that we are not to live like in a Christian bubble or disconnect it from the world or avoid contact from the world, but that we're supposed to live fully in the world as witnesses. Look at John chapter 17. I'm going to pick up in verse, verse 13. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, I'm coming to you now, and he's, he's praying to God, actually. He says, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they, his disciples, may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. And so I've taught them how they should live. I've given them your word. The world has hated them. They're going in opposition to the world. Um, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer, though, is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth, right? So he says, don't take them out of the world. So his prayer is, God, don't take them out of the world, but help them to live fully into the world as witnesses. That is the responsibility of the church, is to realize that our, the, the uh, faith that has captured our life, the God who lives that we've put our hope in and that we're following, that God is leading us in a way that is in opposition to the world. But we are under the strength and power of God and the might of his Holy Spirit at work within us, empowering us. We are to live fully in the world so the world looks and sees what it looks like to live the life that God created us to live. That is a life that's filled with unity that can only happen through forgiveness. That is a life that's filled with compassion that can only happen when God slows us down and helps us to enter into the life of another and feel their pain. 
That is a life that is characterized by grace, that, help by, um, that is that kind of fueled by the gospel, that allows us to see that none of us are deserving of God's grace, and therefore we show grace to others. We see that we live different from the world, but we're supposed to live publicly in the world, not as a way of showing off how good we are or how we've arrived at some point or destination of holiness, but as a way of pointing people to, living as witnesses, pointing people to God himself, that through our lives, people will come to know God. Now, John warns uh, in, in 1 John, I got a bunch of passages this morning, so I'm going to try to keep it moving. In John, 1 John chapter Chapter, uh, chapter two, <laughs> uh, first John chapter two, man, y'all are beating me to it. J.D., you got to stop that. <laughs> don't, don't, don't pop that slide up. No, you can pop it up there because I need their help. In first John uh, chapter two, um, listen to what it says in verse 15. Uh, it says, do not love the world or anything in the world. This is John, the same John that wrote the Gospel of John. He's writing a letter later to the church, and he's writing to the church after having heard Jesus teach these teachings about the world that we just, just, we just looked at. And he's writing this letter to the church, and he says, do not love the world. Now, he's not talking about don't love the world with the love that God loved the world. He's saying don't love the ways of the world. He's really teaching about the seductive nature of the world that if we're living fully in it and not disconnecting from it, and if we're living as witnesses, there are um, times and seasons in our life where temptation will overtake us if we're not careful. If we find ourselves loving the pattern of the world, I used the analogy that I used before, if we find ourselves sleeping in on Sunday morning <laughs> uh, instead of gathering with the body of believers as we're instructed to do in the Bible, and we find that we enjoy uh, sleeping in on Sunday mornings and we can get some extra stuff done around the house when we don't go or participate in the life of the church that's a small way that's not just what he's referring to but that's a small example of a way that we begin to love the ways of the world and we begin to disconnect from the community of believers and rely on our own ability in our own friend circles, in our own community that may be disconnected from the body of believers. So he says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, if, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him, uh, in them. For everything in the world, the, the lust of the flesh, the things that just kind of natural desires that come out of our, our bodies, right? Uh, natural human desires. The lust of the eyes, things we see and we go, I got to have that. And we're not going, does God want me to have that? I'm just going, I got to have that. Lust of the eyes, the pride of life, that thing that's hidden in all of us that wants to kind of bolster our, our, our reputation or our personality. That people will look at us and, and see us as having arrived or accomplished something and not look down on us with pity. This pride of life uh, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires are passing away. So all those things the flesh desires, all those things the eyes see and they want, all that pride, all that's passing away. It's not eternal. It won't last forever. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. You see, John's teaching us that the world around us um, is our enemy because it does not have in mind the things of God. That's not to hate the world as though we're it's our um 
as though there are individuals in the world that we must hate and live in opposition to. Rather, it's that we must live faithfully, and that as we live faithfully to God's word, we find ourselves living in opposition to the world. And so the Bible's challenging us to recognize the world as an enemy so that we don't form alliances with it. So the first enemy that we see that every human has is the world around us. The second one um, that we see that every human has is Satan against us, Satan against us. If you look in John, um, John chapter 12, verse, verse 31, listen to what it says in John chapter 12, verse 31. Well, let, let me just talk a little bit about it before I get there. Uh, in John chapter 12 and other passages, the Bible talks about Satan as the um, the, the kind of the ruler or the God of this world. He's the one um, that, that is uh, the primary influencer of the ways of the world. So when we talk about the world being against us or in opposition to God, it's because it's under the influence, the leadership of Satan. If you look in John chapter 12, um, verse, verse 31, listen to what it says. It says, now is time, this is Jesus talking, now is time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world, right, Jesus is calling Satan, the prince of this world will be driven out. Now he's headed, his, headed in his way to the cross, and he's talking about uh, Satan being the prince of this world and how through the death and resurrection, he's going to push back against the prince of this world. He's going to be driven out. If you look in um, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, you can see another passage. Actually, let's just read them on the slide. It'll be faster to turn in there. It says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Right? It says, The God of this age. So this is Paul writing to the church, and he's saying that Satan is the God of this age. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, listen to what it says there. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, and which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the rulers of the kingdom of the air, the spirit that is now in work in those who are disobedient. So again, Paul is teaching the church um, that Satan is against us. He's, um, he is, does not have our best interests at, at heart, and he is the ruler of this world. And so that if we're falling in line with the ways of the world, we're falling in line with Satan, who has set his trap as a spider sets a web and is against us, and is hoping to catch us. And James, in fact, it says that when one is tempted, don't say that God is tempting you. Rather, you've been drugged away or enticed and dragged away by your own desire um, that's been influenced by Satan himself. You see, he is against us and wants to pull us away from the way of God. And what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 16, and what Jesus does in, in Matthew chapter 16, I'll just, I'm just, I got a bunch of scriptures, I'm just going to read these from the slide. But in Matthew chapter 16, what Jesus does is um, when, when he's talking to his disciples, he's getting ready to go to the cross, and, and he's telling them that he's going to suffer at the hands of men, right? That, that men are going to arrest him, they're going to beat him, he's going to suffer. He's rolling out God's plan for him, which includes the cross, and they're going, no, not, um, not Jesus, right? Because they put all their hopes and trust in in Jesus. When Peter stands up and he goes, never, that's never going to happen. Uh, listen to what Jesus says to him. It says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He says, never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Verse 23, Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. 
So what Jesus is saying, to, to, he's not like renaming, like, you know, God has a way of renaming people. He's not renaming Peter in this place. He already had renamed Peter. Uh, and so he's not renaming him. He's not giving him a nickname. He's not saying from now on you're going to be known as Satan. Rather, he's naming the force, the influencer behind any opposition to God's will. And I think this is one of the ways that we're called to follow Jesus, that we must name the opposition to God's will, right? And it's not Martha, it's not, uh, it's not Bob, it's not Jeremy, it's not, you name it, right? Pick out, pick out, it's not John Doe, right? That's not the opposition to God's will, but rather it's Satan at work in this world um, that is opposing God's will for our life. That puts things in a different perspective, right? It's not your manager, it's not your coworker, it's not your spouse, it's not that person that cut you off in traffic, right? That's like causing you to lose your temper and have a bad day before you even get to work, right? Um, it's, not, it's not any of those things, right? But rather, Satan is always working against us. And just as Jesus named his enemy, we got to put a name to it too so that we're not treating others as though they are our enemies, but rather we recognize the real power behind any opposition to God's will for our life so that we know how to pray, so that we know how to pray against Satan, not against Martha, Bob, Jeremy, or whoever it is, right? Um, but that we're praying against Satan. The third enemy that we see that we have uh, is desire within us. So we have the world around us, we have uh, Satan who's against us, and then we have desire that is within us. In Galatians chapter 5 and other places in the Bible, uh, the Bible refers to these as desires of the flesh, the desires of the flesh. That's these inward desires that have not submitted to the will and word of God, these natural desires that every human has. If humans were allowed to go their own way, do their own thing, there are certain things that we would all do. There are ways that would look common to us all. The Bible calls these desires of the flesh. If you look in Galatians chapter 5, verse... 16. Hey, listen to what it says. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. So when he talks about the Spirit, he's talking about the Spirit of God, right? So the flesh will naturally desire something other than God's will. It's naturally going to go after and pursue things outside of God's will. And so he says, walk by the Spirit, be led by God's Spirit. Um, and you would not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires was contrary to the spirit, and the spirit was contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with one another, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you're led by the spirit, you are not under the law. And then it says in verse 19, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he runs down this whole list of things um, that humans um, distant from God will find themselves pursuing if they're influenced by the desires of the flesh. If the flesh is allowed to have its way, it will pull us into some dark places. 
if it's not kept in check by either the authorities that God has put in place in this world, whether that's parents or government authorities and laws that we have, if it's not kept in check by those and it's not kept in check by the word of God itself, then it will tug us into some dark places because the desire within us cannot be trusted. It is short-sighted. It is selfish. It has in mind its own own immediate well-being, what it seems like it needs in that moment, not realizing that its own immediate well-being will only distance it from God, right? Will only distance us from God and ultimately pull us into a destructive pattern of life. You see, the Bible showing us that the desires within us cannot be trusted, and that's one of our enemies, and that we have to wage war against the enemy that is within. I heard someone say once, sometimes the biggest enemy is the inner me. (laughs) Sometimes the biggest enemy in our life is right here inside of us, wreaking havoc on our lives by the decisions that we make. The Bible showing us that we all have these desires, and that's one of our enemies. Now, what, the, what, what David does in Psalm chapter 23, we're getting back to Psalm chapter 23, uh, what he does for us there is he shows us how God is equipping us to live victorious lives, right? The enemy has already been defeated. We don't have to really worry about whether or not we can defeat the enemy. We just got to live into that victory. And so David is showing us how we can live into that victory against the enemies that we all have in our lives. If we go back um, to Psalm chapter 23, verse 5, listen to what he says. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. First thing we see here is that God fuels us, that God alone gives us the strength we need um, to live victoriously. God alone gives us the strength we need to live victoriously. You prepare a table before me. The imagery here is of a banquet, of a meal. Um, not quite like the meal that many of us had this week because that meal only uh, uh, bogs us down, right? Makes us sleepy, makes us full, makes us want to roll from the dinner table to the sofa uh, and and lay there and take a nap. That that meal doesn't necessarily give us strength. That meal's just for pleasure on Thanksgiving Day. Um, But the real purpose of food, and sometimes we miss it because there's so much good food in our world, but the real purpose of food is to give us energy, to give us strength, is to be fuel for our bodies. If you're eating right, you'll find that your food makes you feel better, not sleepy. It makes you feel more alive and more awake and not, uh, not like you want to go take a nap. And so food is supposed to be good for our body. And so the food that God is preparing for us on his table, <laughs> some Brussels sprouts, <laughs> steamed, of course, some, <laughs> some broccoli. There's somebody walking out. He's like, I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. I'm not eating none of that. (laughs) This sounded like a good idea. This guy started talking about broccoli and cauliflower and stuff. (laughs) Um, God welcomes us to his table where he prepares for us a feast um, that fuels us to live victoriously against the enemy. And what we see in the Bible 
what we see in the scripture is that the fuel that we really need is God himself. That God is the fuel that we really need. That he invites us to come and sit at his table in the presence of our enemies so that we are constantly fed, refreshed, refilled, given the strength that we need to defeat the enemy by God himself. God is feeding us. He's giving us that. And so there's this concept of like, um, I mean, sometimes we want the blessing of God without wanting God himself. Right, So we want the strength to do the right thing, and we want uh, the blessing of God. We want God's provision. We want prosperity. We want uh, a better marriage. We want a, a, um, a more financial stability. We want, we want the blessing of God right, without wanting God himself, without wanting to just sit in God's presence and be with him. And what this imagery is saying is you've got to come to God's table, and you've got to be willing to sit there with God. This is you got to be willing to spend time with God. The question that I've been asking myself all week as I've been reading this passage, and I want to ask you the same question, is how much time out of your week does God have your undivided attention? How much time are you putting down your phone, maybe turning off your computer, silencing the television, spending time with God? Because we want the blessings of God, but sometimes we're not pursuing God himself. And David is showing us that God will prepare a table before you, and he will invite you to come sit down at that table with him and feast on his word and allow him to speak through you as you pray and you engage in this conversation with God. And it may not in the moment, it may feel like a task, it may feel like you're just doing something that the preacher told you to do, um, not realizing that God is filling you up for what you'll face later that day, later that week, later this year. That what we really need is God himself, and we need to slow our lives down and sit at the table with God and give him our undivided attention. Second thing we see in this passage that God does us, does or gives us so that we might live victoriously, or a way that he helps us to live victoriously, is he anoints us. He equips us with what we need to defeat the enemy, to live victoriously. You look in verse 5, it says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. We look all throughout the Bible. Anointing, when God anoints somebody, he gives them a special ability, or strength, or courage, or protection, or provision, or authority in order to do what God has called them to do, right? He's giving them what they need. When God anoints someone, he's giving them what they need to accomplish his will. When humans anoint, we do see humans anointing, and even in the church, sometimes we anoint with oil someone that's been called to God's purpose. We're just acknowledging what God has already done, right? God's authority, his ability, his protection, his courage, his strength, his calling that he's already placed on somebody's life. So when God does it, he's giving them some gift that they need to defeat the enemy. When we do it, um, we're just acknowledging what God has already done. You can think about two, two examples with David. David, who was merely a shepherd. And you go, how does a shepherd go from being a shepherd to a king? God anointed him. God chose him. God gave him a special blessing, a special ability, special protection. When Saul, the king, was trying to kill him, God had anointed him. And Saul's power, his might, had nothing 
on David, having been anointed by God. We see the same thing or similar thing with Jesus in Luke chapter 4. Um, uh, Jesus declares that God has anointed me, right? The Spirit of the Lord, he says, is on me, and he has anointed me. He says, God himself has anointed Jesus. And you go, how does this, uh, this boy that was born to a poor uh, a carpenter and a poor uh, a woman, um, how, does, how, does this, um, how does this boy that was born to those two become the one that God uses to uh, save the world, and it's because God anointed him. You say, why did he lay quiet? Like, why didn't nobody hear about him for 30 years? Like, why wasn't he, like, feeding the 5,000 for all 30 years, like, coming out of the womb, like, mom, be healed, boom, Uh, you know, uh, milk in my belly, boom. Like, why wasn't he, like, like, why didn't he come out doing those kind of crazy, miraculous things? Why wasn't it like, Mary, you, we don't have anything to eat. Well, maybe when it, Mom, we don't have anything to eat. Bread, boom, multiply. Like, we don't need to go to the grocery store anymore. Why wasn't Jesus? We have no record of him doing any of that. Because he declares in Luke chapter 4, the beginning of his ministry, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, and he's anointed me, right? God's anointing gave him the ability, the protection, the courage to do what God was calling him to do. It does the same thing for us. When God has called you to do something and you're going, I can't do that. I don't have the ability to do that. I don't have the strength to do that. I don't have the authority to do that. I just can't see myself in that role. Um, God, that's just not the way I roll. (laughs) Um, That's a sign that we need to be praying for the anointing of God. God, give me the ability, right? That, That begins to shape our prayer life. When the enemy It's waging war against us, whichever one it is, whether it's Satan that you recognize or some desires within you that are starting to creep up and you're like, I can't push them down any longer. God, give me your anointing, your ability that I can live victoriously over this enemy that is the inner me, right? This one that's within me that is just wearing me out. God's anointing is what we need. Third thing, we see here is that God invites us to stay at his table. So, so not only um, does he, uh, does he um, prepare this table before us in the presence of our enemies, and not only does he anoint our head with oil, but listen to what it says. It says, my cup overflows. He welcomes us to stay at his table. There's no such thing as overstaying our welcome with God. In, in biblical times, there was a practice um, where when you would sit down at the table at somebody's house and they would sit the cup on the table before you and they would take out the pitcher and they begin to pour the wine, if they really liked you, <laughs> if they really were welcoming you into to their space and saying you're welcome to stay here for a while, they, w- they would fill your cup to it overflowed onto the table. They, they weren't just being messy. It, it was just a, a custom of their day, a way of saying you're welcome to stay here. Your cup is full to the brim. You're welcome to stay a long time. Sip, sip your wine, and I'll keep filling it up because you're welcome to stay. If, if your cup gets empty, that means that person's getting tired of you, and it's time for you to go. You've been there too long. They're getting sleepy. I'm getting sleepy. It's time for me to go to bed, and it's time for you to get out of my house, right, and the cup gets empty. But when the cup is overflowing, so David writes, my cup overflows. He's saying, God is saying to you, come and stay at my table. You're welcome here and all that you need to defeat the enemy, to live victoriously, is right here in me, God says. You know, every Sunday, we come to these tables around the room. 
And I know these are just plastic tables that are covered in, in black tablecloths. And this is juice that we prepare and crackers that we put on a plate. But it's more than that. When we do that, it becomes the Lord's table. This is the Lord's table. And he invites us to come and eat, eat with him, to come and fellowship with him, to come and stay. Now, while this is his table and we come here, there is something special that God does at these tables that re-energizes um, us, that refreshes our souls, that gives us strength for the week. While there is something special that happens, there is also symbolic of the fact that we can live at the table of God. You're not just at God's table when you walk up to this table and share in communion. That we can live there at the table of God. We can stay in God's presence. We can welcome God into our everyday. We can see every moment of every day is holy because God is there. And we have the opportunity to welcome him just as he's welcomed us. Just as God has said, you can't outstay your welcome. We sit down and say, well, then I'll stay. <laughs> I'll stay in your presence. This morning, as you make your way to one of these four tables, make that your commitment, that you're going to stay in God's presence, that on Monday you're going to realize that you are in the presence of God and that he welcomes you to stay there because he wants to do some powerful things through you. He wants to give you the victory, victory over your enemies. Amen. Let's, let's pray. God, we do give you thanks this morning that we have this opportunity to open your word and to read it. And God, we, um, we're just blown away by your love for us. That you have chosen to welcome us at your table, into your house. And God, we come in dirty, filthy, smelling, not fit to sit at your table. But your grace welcomes us. It looks past our faults. It forgives our sins. Your grace sees and still loves. God, we're thankful that our God isn't blind and being deceived by us, but that he sees us for all that we are and all the mistakes that we've made and says, I still love you and you're welcome at my table that you say, I still love you, and I want to give you the victory over all of your enemies. That you say, I still love you and want you to dwell in my house forever. God, how we long and look forward to that day. It's in your son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.